Well, last time I taught, which was uh, two weeks ago, we concluded uh, Romans 7. We looked at that the very nature of these verses, some people will say they were really written to the carnal, quote-unquote, carnal Christian, and we looked at how that is a dichotomy of terms. There's really no such thing as a carnal Christian. Even uh, Pastor Phillips in his particular uh, sermon last week also spoke of that uh, from the book of Mark. Uh, you're either carnal and you're not a believer, or you are genuinely converted and a Christian. So these are the only two types of people they are. there are. You're either a Christian or you're not a Christian. And we're going to be looking at that today in our study of Romans 8. But we also discussed how Paul, who really was one of the greatest Christians that ever lived, struggled with sin. Romans 7.15, For I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want but I do the very thing I hate. Certainly as modern-day Christians, we can relate to this. All of us are of the flesh, and we will continue to struggle with sin. Even as Joe Bianchi pointed out last week from 2 Thessalonians 1, it's almost like we take one step forward and a couple of steps back. And that's part of what the Christian journey is about as we journey toward heaven on this pilgrimage, seeking to mortify sins. We're not, we are to be striving by the grace of God with the help of the Holy Spirit to be growing in our holiness. And this brings us to our section today, which will be Romans 8. James Boyce in his commentary says that Romans 8 is the greatest chapter in the Bible. Uh, John Piper wrote that Romans 8 is the greatest chapter and the greatest book in the entirety of Scripture. And so... My goal is that we will learn from this material. This is no doubt probably one of the most theologically dense chapters in all of Scripture. And so we'll spend, Lord willing, probably about six weeks here as we go through uh, the verses in Romans 8. So if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn there. Romans 8, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 11 today. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. 
Well, if you look closely at these verses, Paul's really describing two different lives. He's describing characteristics of the unbeliever, and he's also describing characteristics of the believer. So with that context, I want us to see specifically four characteristics of the non-Christian and four characteristics of the Christian. We're also going to look at the result, the end result of these two different lives, what they eventually lead to. Now, stay with me because I'm going to jump around a little bit. We're going to get each of these verses, but we're going to do them in a different order to fit within the context of these descriptions. So, first heading is life of the non-Christian. Four characteristics. They set their mind on things of the flesh, verse 5. They're hostile to God, verse 7. They do not submit to God's law, verse 7. And they cannot please God, verse 8. The result is death, we see in verse 6. Contrast that with the life of the Christian who, first of all, there is no condemnation, verse 1. We'll also discuss why there is no condemnation. We'll look at that in verses 2 through 4. They set their minds on things of the Spirit, verse 5. The body is dead because of sin, verse 10. And the Holy Spirit gives life, verse 11. All of this will result in, we'll see eternal life in verse 11, and life and peace, see in verse 6. So first of all, the life of the unbeliever, the first characteristic we see is actually found in verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. Now we know that both the believer and the unbeliever are of the flesh, meaning we are in human form, living in a sinful world. But the difference is the unbeliever not only lives, uh, is not only of the flesh, but also lives according to the flesh, thus fulfilling their fleshly desires and setting their minds on sinful affections. The verb behind set their minds is phroneo, and it refers to the basic inclination or bent of the thought process of the mind. So how is the mind just kind of naturally bent and inclined and includes a person's affections and will? So does an unbeliever set his mind on eternity and salvation? No, he does not. An unbeliever sets his mind on this temporal world, not on what is to come. He therefore lives for the temporal world, imbibing of all the world has to offer. The mind of the non-Christian is bent toward fulfilling the desires of the flesh. This is what's described in 2 Peter 2.10, those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. The mind of the non-Christian is continually on idolatry. He or she is thinking of ways to fulfill their own desires, thus making themselves a god. Now, you may say to me, and you would be right, it seems like the non-Christian can do good things. That is true. A, good, a, a non-Christian can be moralistic and be doing good things, but their motivation for doing those things are sinful. He may be thinking of good, doing good works toward others, but that is not with a desire to please God, but may rather be to elevate himself and make him look better in the world's eyes. He may be thinking of ways to earn more money, but not in an effort to tithe more or to give others 
in need. The inclination of the unbeliever is this. While living in the flesh, I'm going to set my mind on the flesh and these sinful desires in order to fulfill the desires of the flesh. William Hendrickson writes, They set their minds on and are most deeply interested in, constantly talk about, engage and glory in the things pertaining to the flesh, that is, to sinful human nature. So that's the first characteristic of the unbeliever, is that their minds are set on the flesh. Secondly, verse 7, mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Now, to be hostile toward is to be antagonistic toward or to be opposed to. We certainly all, we know, we inherited the fallen nature of our first parents, Adam and Eve. And so this fallen nature includes a mind that is naturally set on things of the flesh and utterly opposed to God and is working through mankind. This is why uh, there's an encouragement in Scripture to be transformed in the renewal of your mind because our minds are not naturally bent toward God. They're naturally bent opposed to God. The mind of the unbeliever is set on fulfilling the flesh, but he's opposed to God who is spirit. Whether the unbeliever realizes or not, he is not just an enemy of God, he's actually at enmity with God. Matthew Henry writes, the believer is not only an enemy, but enmity itself. It is not only the alienation of the soul from God, but the opposition of the soul against God. It rebels against his authority, thwarts his design, opposes his interest, spits in his face, spurns at his bowels. That's a graphic depiction of the non-Christian, but it shows how utterly opposed to God he is in his natural state. The third characteristic of the unbeliever, and it's in our passage today, is that in verse 7, he does not submit to God's law. He does not submit to to God's law. This verse really describes the religion of the unbeliever one that does not submit to God's law as contained in the Scriptures. It is true that we were made for worship. We all worship something, even the unbeliever, right? Those of you that like to go to restaurants uh, and know about how even the restaurants are changing a bit, you can go to restaurants now and they have a la carte menus. You notice that? Uh, The a la carte menu and the buffet are the two most popular restaurant styles in America right now. And, what, and for good reason, really, because in the buffet, you can go through the line, you can pick what you want to eat, and you can leave what you don't want to eat. With the a la carte menu, you can choose the items separately that you want to eat and leave off the rest. Well, this is how people treat religion. They pick and they choose what they want and what fits their lifestyle, and what they want to believe in, and they leave the rest for someone else. That's why you'll, constantly, you'll hear this mantra, what's good for you is not good for me, or what your truth is is not necessarily my truth. It's the religion of the day. It's the a la carte menu of religion, picking and choosing what you want to believe and leaving for someone else what is not good for you. This is what religious syncretism is about. It's combining two different philosophies or different religions 
to create your own religion. One of the main problems with that is it's not only untrue to do that, but it's also idolatrous to do that. Because in doing so, you're making yourself the supreme judge of what you think is true. And you're making yourself a god. So the unbeliever does not only does not only not submit to God's law, but he rather submits to a law that he himself, a philosophy of ideas and religions that he himself has created. James Boyce writes in summary of what we've discussed thus far, this is why Paul says that people in their unsaved state are hostile to God and why they do not submit to his law. The two go together. They do not submit to God's law because they are hostile to him. And because they are hostile to God, they inevitably try to construct a religion that will protect themselves from him. Well, fourth, we see that the unbeliever cannot please God in verse 8. And this makes sense, right? How can you please God if you set your mind on the flesh, if you're hostile to God, if you're not are submitting to his law? It makes sense then that you would not be able to please God. So it's because of these characteristics that the unbeliever cannot possibly please God. In fact, God is angry and wicked, or excuse me, God is angry with the wicked every day. We live in a day and age where people love to highlight God's love and not talk about his wrath. Well, both are true. He is a wrathful God, but he also is a loving God. Both are characteristics of God. But the psalmist writes in Psalm 711, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. So he is angry with the wicked deeds of the unbeliever. Well, what is the end result for the unbeliever. We see in verse 6, for to set the mind on the flesh is death. The unbeliever will experience death. In other words, separation from God while in this world and eternal separation from God when he leaves this world. Paul writes, and we've discussed this in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We've seen the characteristics of the unbeliever so far, and we've seen the end result. Now we want to turn our attention to characteristics of the believer. But what I want to submit to you is that as we approach this next section, that we do so with all humility. Because everything I just said about the unbeliever could have also been said of you and of me before coming to Christ. You and I had our minds set on the flesh. We were hostile to God. We did not submit to God's law. We were at enmity with God. But then God, through Christ, did something amazing for us. Let's look. Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Now, notice the placement of this verse directly after Paul describing the sin struggle for every Christian at the end of Romans 7. It's almost as if he's saying, I struggle, I know you are struggling and will struggle, but remember what Christ has done for you. And because of that, you are no longer condemned. Now, remember, let's look at these words carefully uh, in this first verse of Romans 8. 
First word we want to look at is condemnation. This word appears only here and in Romans 5, 16, and 18. Leon Morris writes, Condemnation is a forensic term which here includes both the sentence and the execution of the sentence. As believers, you are declared not guilty. And as such, you do not have to bear the punishment for one who is guilty. And why is that? It's all because of Jesus who bore the guilt. The word now in verse 1 applies to a change of state. We who were once condemned are now no longer condemned because of what God through Jesus did for us. The word no is an important one in verse 1 and it's actually in the Greek it's the first word of the sentence. The word no in the Greek is the first word of verse 1. Martin Lloyd-Jones suggested the following as a more accurate rendering of this verse. Not only is the Christian not in a state of condemnation now, he never can be. It is impossible. So it denotes really the strength of the word no. No condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. Remember, dear brother and sister, you are no longer condemned. Now to be sure, I'm sure many of us will hear things like this in our minds. You are not good enough. That sin that you did last week, you're going to continue to struggle with. You can't possibly overcome that. Well, if you've heard that, you know that's not coming from the Lord, right? Because the Lord tells you the exact opposite. I'll remove your sins as far as the east is from the west. You're no longer condemned. You have the very power that raised Jesus from the dead, the Holy Spirit living within you to help you put off that sin. So that begs the question, where does that come from? Those thoughts, they come from the evil one, from the devil himself. Olin Stokes, in his writing on Desiring God, says this in comparing conviction versus condemnation. I think this is really helpful. Conviction is a necessary feeling that we should all as Christians cultivate. Condemnation is a lie that we should throw off. Conviction comes from the Holy Spirit, whom we grieve with our sin. Condemnation comes from the devil, who will do anything to drive a wedge between God's people and himself. Conviction is, a lo- is like a pain signal that leads us away from danger. It's a warning sign, so to speak. Condemnation is like an anesthetic that leaves us feeling numb. So how is it, dear believer, that you and I can say in full confidence, I am not condemned because of my sin? It's because of what Paul goes on to write about in the next three verses. So look with me there, Romans 8, 2 through 4. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. James Boyce writes a summary statement for these verses, and I think it's, it's accurate and it's 
worth considering. He writes, there is no condemnation for those who have been joined to Jesus Christ by God the Father through the instrumentality of the Holy Spirit. So we see at work here in this one verse the working of the Trinity. Some in the evangelical community will unfairly give more credit to one member of the Trinity than to others. I'm sure you've seen that. William Hendrickson writes, we're living in an age in which in some evangelistic circles, a disproportionate interest is shown in Jesus, as if honor and glory should be ascribed to the Son alone. Others, again, fill with the wrong kind of ecumenical fervor, the kind that aims at uniting all religious bodies into one huge world church, minimize the work of the Savior, and emphasize that all of us are brothers, God being the Father of them all. And then still others, a third party, of late becoming more vocal, that's to be sure, magnifies charismatic gifts and cannot stop talking about the Spirit. What's our answer to that? Well, an accurate statement according to Scripture is that all three members of the one Godhead are of great importance and worthy of esteem. So let's look at all three members of the Trinity specifically and their role in salvation. First of all, God the Father ordains our salvation. He did this by sending Jesus in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering for the Father would bring to himself. So Jesus came, yes, in human flesh, 100% God, 100% man, to be the only sacrifice and mediator that could restore man to God. In sending Jesus as our propitiation, God condemned sin and man so that the righteous requirement of the law might be met. What do we mean by that? It means that we couldn't fulfill the covenant of works. Adam and Eve sinned. All have sinned since Adam and Eve and born with a sinful nature since them. So because we could not obey God perfectly, Jesus came and he did that which we couldn't do. He fulfilled the law perfectly and not only that, but also laid down his life for you and for me, for those whom the Father had given him. And in so doing, while on the cross, our sins were laid on him and his righteousness was imputed to us. Just think about that. What wondrous love the Father had for you in ordaining your salvation, in freeing you from the darkness, from the domain of sin, and into his light and eternal life. Well, while God the Father ordained our salvation, God the Son accomplished it through his sin-atoning death on the cross. Jesus was our propitiation and endured the wrath of God against sinful mankind. But he also was our redemption to set us free from sin and make us alive in Christ. Now, we've touched on this before, but in this context, I just want to say it again. I think it's important here. You and I, yes, we will struggle with sin, hopefully less and less as we journey through this Christian life. That's the goal. But you and I are no longer slaves to sin. We're no longer under the dominion and reign of Satan. Rather, we are slaves to righteousness. And we are under God's dominion and reign. Finally, the Holy Spirit applies our salvation. 
So God the Father ordains it. God the Son is um, accomplishing it. God the Spirit applies it. James Boyce writes, He, that is the Holy Spirit, has joined us to Christ so that we become beneficiaries of all Christ has done. By joining us to Christ, the Holy Spirit seals our salvation and makes possible the great declaration of this chapter, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See the working of all three members of the one Godhead in saving us. So we've seen for the Christian there is how much condemnation? No condemnation. The second characteristic of the Christian in these verses is found in verse 5. Those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. Now this is in stark contrast to the unbeliever who sets their mind on the flesh. Certainly there are things, we could say, of the world that all of us have to think about. You're going to think about today what you're going to eat. You've got to think about where to live and what car to drive and help your children decide on college. All these things, and they're important things. But the Christian who has a transformed mind will think on these things through the lens of Scripture, using the Bible to inform his thinking on these matters. Furthermore, he will be thinking, that's me and you, more of heaven and what is to come with each passing day. Yes, we live in this present life, but our minds must be on that which is to come. Remember, as we said earlier, the verb behind set their minds refers to the basic inclination or thought patterns of the mind and includes a person's affections and will. So, dear brother and sister in the Lord, let me just ask, as I ask myself, what is your mind set on? What are your affections bent toward? What are you continually thinking about? What is your thought life like? Oh, that we would think more on Christ, the great one who was sent to deliver us from the bondage of sin and death and set us free to live for him. For the Christian to think on heaven is not to be of less earthly good, like some say, but to think on heaven is actually to be of more earthly good. More earthly good in our witness to our family, to our neighbors, all to the glory of God that people would see Christ in us. Well, thirdly, we see that the body of the Christian is dead because of sin. We see this in verse 10. The word body here in the Greek is soma and refers to literally our human bodies. So in other words, the flesh of our natural bodies has been tainted with sin. Boy says, and has the seeds of literal death in them and will eventually cease to live. He goes on to write, although our physical bodies will die and are in a certain sense as good as dead now, our spirits have been made alive by the Holy Spirit whom the Father has sent to do precisely that. What's the point? Well, the point is to compare, if you will, or contrast the difference between the body which will die and that soul which will live on for eternity. The fourth characteristic is in verse 10. The spirit is life because of righteousness. We take this to mean that in contrast to the body which is dying, the Holy Spirit gives life to the believer. Boyce points out the Spirit's giving life to us means that we are alive to God 
alive to the Bible and alive to the Spirit of God in other Christians. Non-Christian is not alive to God. His mind has been darkened to the truths that are contained in Scripture, but not so for you as believers in the Lord Jesus. You are able, by the Spirit's help, yes, to live for God, to understand the Scriptures, and to also recognize and see the Spirit's work in other fellow believers. Well, what's the end result for the Christian? We read in verse 11, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. Most commentators believe that this particular verse points to a future state. And it's that future state of glorification when we are with God in heaven, when the Spirit will raise our souls up to meet God as he at one time raised Jesus from the dead. While that points to our future, there's a sense, though, in which there's a wonderful consequence or benefit to the believer now in this life. Verse 6 But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. As Christians journeying through this life, as we set our minds on the Spirit on things above, God gives us life and peace. He gives us spiritual life in a darkened and dead world, and He gives us peace that the world does not understand. Christians going through very difficult trials, sometimes people will say to them, non-Christians particularly, how can you have such peace? What's the answer to that? It's not in and of myself that I'm having peace. It's because of what God has done for me through the person and work of Jesus Christ that has restored me to him who is peace. So we have life and we have peace in this world because of what God has done for us. Martin Lloyd-Jones comments, The natural mind, the carnal mind, is enmity against God, is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. But the Christian, he can be subject to it. He is subject to it. He desires to be subject to it, and he goes out of his way to subject himself to it. He hungers and thirsts after righteousness. He desires to keep the commands which God himself has given So because of the Son dying for us and the Holy Spirit giving us life, we have peace and fellowship with God the Father, both now and for eternity. So I think about these verses and I study them this week. It really should leave us in awe, in total humility of what God has done for us. For we see in this one passage two lives the life of the unbeliever, and the life of the believer. And we remember as Christians reading through this passage, we remember who we were. We remember whose we were, and we remember at one time what we were living for. But now everything has changed. And it's not because you and I decided to change. It's because God condescended to you and to me, and he reached out and he said, you are mine. And I'm going to change you from the inside out. That's what God has done. We have now been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We're no longer, we're no longer, dear believer, under condemnation. And we are now free to live for the glory of God and are living not for ourselves. We are living in a way that will bear testimony 
to what God, through His Son, has done for you and for me. Let's pray. God in heaven, what wondrous love you had for us that you would send forth your Son to die for us. Father, would it humble us? Would we stand in utter awe at what you have done for us, at what you are doing through us, even at what you are preparing for us in eternity? And in light of that, Oh, Father, help us to live for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.